Beautiful summer morning, and uh, the early fog that we've been having uh, for the last week or so seems to have burned off earlier, and so the, the sun is out. Um, and uh, happy to be with you here in the Zendo and out there in Radio Land. Um, First, I want to acknowledge uh, we have an old friend of Berkeley Zen Center as, as a guest here today. Uh, I'm really happy to welcome uh, Diane Rosetto, uh, who is the uh, founder and the, the Abbot Emeritus, which I didn't realize, of the Bay Zen Center, uh, which uh, she's a Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck and uh, is a, a teacher in the, the uh, Ordinary Mind Zen School. And I will say that uh, uh, I remember Diane uh, from the early 1980s when, when I came here. And my recollection is that uh, you were Sashin director for a time, and I think you were you were the first, my first Sashin director, and so uh, I uh, looked up to her as an elder, and I still really respect her for her teaching and her writing, and you know it's interesting she's sitting right in front of the other person that I remember in this room from that time, Ron Esther. So uh, thank you for visiting. It's kind of I remember that Diane uh, once questioned Mel about what's all this talk about being correct. He went through a phase of being correct, using the word correct law. Uh -huh. So that's what I remember about Diane. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, now we're all incorrect. And uh, she's on a, a bus woman's holiday today. So, um, We have begun to uh, put out word and take registration for uh, a program that we're going to be doing this year and hopefully next year at Berkeley Zen Center, uh, which is called Many Communities, One Sangha, Exploring the Realities of Equity and Inclusion. And I'm going to, uh, I'm not giving a sales pitch. Uh, because actually that's not necessary. Uh, we put out the word on the list, uh, I think two days ago, and we're, we're already close to halfway subscribed for the uh, registrations that we can take for this year. But I wanted to talk a little about uh, how we are doing this, why we were doing this, and 
why I see this as a, a, a deep expression of our, uh, our Dharma practice. Uh, so I think that for many of us, um, the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020 was a kind of watershed event, uh, even though there have been uh, terrible violations of human rights uh, of African-American people and others before that event. And since that event, there was something about uh, the murder of George Floyd and you know the fact that it was all recorded and those who wished to, wished or didn't wish to witness it saw it on the news and it was a, a turning point in I think in our society and a wake-up call for something that had long been the case uh, you know in the in 1903, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, in his book, The Souls of Black Folk, wrote that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And in that case, he was talking about not just discrimination and racism in the United States, but um, the effects of colonialism in Africa, Asia, South America, and very soon he he reflected and he expanded that uh, to really include all kinds of uh, all the aspects of discrimination and i think that you know i keep i look at the world through a dharma lens uh you know even if i'm looking at systems that what i what one might think of as political systems. I try to uh, to look at it through the lens of, of the Buddhist teachings, and in a sense, the uh, the discrimination that Du Bois was speaking about, which I think we all have we all have some awareness of, um, is really uh, what we speak to directly in the, the seventh of the Bodhisattva Pure Mind precepts. Uh, the, the prohibitive side, prohibitory side of that is uh, not to, the vow of not to praise self at the expense of others. And then the, the affirmation side that we chant when we have, uh, when we have, uh, Bodhisattva ceremony, our various ordinations is uh, the vow to maintain modesty or humility, putting others first. And Thich Nhat Hanh in his, his gloss on the seventh precept uh, speaks of it as a full inclusiveness, including everyone and everything. And so I think that uh, if I look at what Du Bois was saying, uh, I can understand that through the lens of the of the seventh precept. Uh, 
to include everyone in equality, in the equality of our true nature, which despite the differences that we have in, in our abilities, in our lives, uh, has in essence, every being is equal in, in true nature, in Buddha nature. So in response to, uh, to these rising circumstances and concerns uh, and listening to uh, the voices of, uh, particularly of people of color in our Sangha, uh, who had surprising stories to tell about painful experiences that they may have had here, and uh, that painful experiences that, that many of us have had in, in this area about, of really of communication. Uh, a group of senior students and long-term practitioners and some people from the, the informal BIPOC group came together and we've been meeting almost weekly for, for two years. Really with the question, with the first question of just, what is it we can do that would facilitate open and constructive communications and help ourselves and help each other uh, to be more free uh, from the snares of our views, which are deeply patterned and often understandably unconscious. So, um, this group, we've come to call it the Culture Change Committee, and I know that that pushes buttons for some people, and I'm going to speak to, uh, shortly, I want to speak to what culture is and what change is. Uh, but the, the gist of it is to, uh, we meant to try to find a way, uh, based on our wish to deepen communication among members, and also how skillfully to be able to include and express uh, different, different views and to bring healing energy uh, to sometimes unseen uh, injuries between people in the community and then to be able to develop these skills so we can use them in our wider world, use them in our families, use them in our workplaces, in our the other communities we inhabit. And it's important to understand that this is actually work that is going on uh, in a lot of other sanghas, particularly Zen sanghas. Uh, uh, but I know because I meet regularly with the uh, with the with the abbots and senior practice leaders from 
San Francisco Zen Center, from Brooklyn Zen Center, uh, Houston, Austin, uh, uh, Zen Mountain Center at Mount Tremper, which was Dido Louis place now led by Shugan Arnold. And all of them are engaged in processes like this. And they are challenging because they're hard. Uh, uh, and it's hard to have a discussion about differences. It's hard to have discussions about race. Uh, but this seems like the moment, you know, as Du Bois said, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And here we are pretty well into the 21st century, and we still have these issues, you know, and we can see the kind of fear uh, and uh, strife that emerge. You know, I think that in many ways, the the insurgency that that occurred in uh, January of 2000, uh, 2021 in Washington was about race. It was about fear of privilege. And that's coming out in in the testimony. It's coming out in the rhetoric of the people who came armed for bear uh, to Washington then. So this is really live in us. It's not, it's not. It's not dividing our Sangha in a in a really harsh way, but it's underlying the society that we live in. And so what we've done is we talked around to a lot of people, people in different Sanghas, leaders of Sanghas, and some of our our teachers of color. And what we discovered is that um, it was a program that was uh, sort of piloted by, uh, I think, through San Francisco Zen Center and the East Bay Meditation Center uh, uh, that was designed by uh, Mushi Makeda, who has spoken here. She's a long-term Zen practitioner and one of the, she's really a leader at the East Bay Meditation Center. Uh, Crystal Johnson, uh, who I don't know, uh, but she's a uh, uh, European American woman, I believe. Uh, and she was instrumental. And then Rhonda McGee, who is African American, she's a lawyer and uh, also Zen practitioner. Her practice began in Thich Han's community. And uh, in the last years, she's, she's been practicing with the Upaya Zen Center, where she is, uh, uh, she has become what's called a Dharma holder, which is uh, actually something I'm thinking about. This is equivalent to what we call lay entrusted, you know, people who are wearing green green rakasus uh and i like that term dharma holder uh and so she's a upaya dharma holder and 
I really trust her because I've had the opportunity to work with her in the UPIA chaplaincy program uh, over the last few years. So we talked with her and we found that the uh, Soto Zen Buddhist Association, of which uh, Sojin was one of the founders, and I am a recent past president, uh, had, had taken this work that Zen Center and East Bay Meditation Center had uh, piloted and turned it into a program. And we talked with them and we're, what we're doing is a uh, version of this program. And we're the first place that is trying it out. So we're going to do basically an 11 month program, which will include about two hours of work a month. Uh, and there'll be small group sessions that will alternate with five in-person sessions with, with Rhonda, which is just like a great opportunity. And uh, I think people really like working with her and live a chance. She's gonna, she's gonna give the Dharma talk on November 6th, I believe. Eighth? Eighth. Eighth. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, she has a, a wonderful, gentle way. Uh, and uh, I've seen her work at Upaya and it, it worked very well. So anyway, we're beginning this program and uh, I just want to express my support for this program and uh, my hope that our participation will ultimately help us communicate more effectively, not just on issues of race or diversity, but uh, across the board, areas where it's hard for us to communicate openly sometimes. Uh, that's just difficulties that we may have as individuals. I do. Uh, I don't see taking on this, this program as it's not a critique of the practice that we've had for all these years at BCC. Uh, I think it's a way of extending it, of sustaining and deepening that practice uh, and of helping us as bodhisattvas be fully available to the world. So I wanna come back to this question of culture change what it means and maybe what it doesn't mean. Briefly to touch on the word culture, there's a really uh, uh, an excellent definition of culture that comes from uh, the uh, teacher and psychotherapist uh, Resma Menachem in his uh, really wonderful book, My Grandmother's Hands. And what he says is, 
Culture is how our bodies retain and reenact history. Through the foods we eat or refuse to eat, the stories we tell, the things that hold meaning for us, the images that move us, what we are able and unable to sense or feel or process, the way we see the world and a thousand other aspects of life. I think that's a, that's a great functioning definition of culture. And in that sense, I think what, what I, the way I understand it is that culture is something that is held by each of us. And the places of resonance and congruence among ourselves is where it broadens from uh, this individual basis of experience to shared experiences. So all of us have multiple cultures that we belong to. Uh, and uh, some of it is seen to us, some of it is not so seen to us. Uh, some of it emerges only in contrast. Sometimes, you know, what my experience is, I've, I've seen, I've often had a clearer vision of my culture by entering other cultures where it's really different. Uh, and it's not better. And it's not worse. It's just people have different things that they share. So, you know, I think that across the various, uh, the migration of Dharma that has happened uh, in uh, 2,500 years of Buddhism, it's, it has moved through different cultures and, uh, and entered different cultures and created cultures of its own. The culture of Indian Buddhism is quite different than the culture of Chinese Buddhism. You know, in Chinese, in Chinese Buddhism, you know, they, they took about 300 years to translate the Dharma into their own vernacular. And that became something something new that was rooted in something old. So it didn't discard what it came before, but it adapted it so that it fit the broader culture of, uh, of China. So that comes to the change part. And again, I see change through the lens of the Dharma. So to me, change is the first principle uh, when we articulate the three marks of existence. Impermanence. 
it's not just a good idea, it's the law. Uh, and that's the first mark of existence, impermanence, non-self, and, and depending on how you experience those two, uh, dukkha, or suffering, uh, if, you, if you resist impermanence and non-self, you're invariably going to suffer. If you can embrace and include them, then the third mark of existence is founded. Quite a number of the Mahayana text is Nirvana. Nirvana is really accepting that things change and accepting that we do not hold a fixed self, that the self is always changing. And it's the self is made of non-self elements. So Buddhism, when it began, uh, what the Buddha really emphasized was a kind of transformative individual process. And, you know, from my perspective, I've thought about this a lot, and I find it very interesting. Uh, what was true in the Buddha's time is that almost every aspect of one's life was socially determined, it was determined on the basis of your gender, your caste, your occupation, your tribal affiliation or uh, group affiliation, uh, and all these factors. And you were born into all of these elements of what we call culture. And uh, in many ways, they were quite inflexible. And so if you were born into a certain position, status, set of roles, um, your duty was to live out that life, you know, and if you were good in that life, maybe you could get a better life the next time. Uh, you know, maybe you could be born, you know, if you're born a woman, maybe you could be born a man next time, much better, right? Uh, uh, or you could be born in a higher caste, or you could have a better occupation. Uh, and what the Buddha said, which is interesting, was this is what was radical about what he was offering was, no, it has nothing to do, your value, your worth as an individual has nothing to do with birth. And very explicitly said this in the early sutras, that we talked about what is a Brahmin. Now, Brahmin was the priestly caste, and it was noble and kind of the elite. He, he said, one is not a Brahmin by virtue of birth. One is a Brahmin by virtue of action. So what he was introducing 
uh, was a kind of radical individualism, which was really unique and it changed the culture. Uh, so by creating a community of people who were committed to these uh, values that were radical in their, in their time, uh, he was overturning older patterns of belief and practice. And that means that his Sangha included all the castes. Uh, his Sangha, uh, very shortly in its development, included women. Uh, and it was open to anyone who wanted to do Buddhist practice. And this changed India for more than a thousand years. Buddhist culture was the dominant culture in India. And when you go to India, you can you can see the caves, you can see the monasteries, you know. Um, and that was that was the circumstance of of culture it was a culture change, which then got there was resistance and pushback and for a variety of reasons, including invasion, including the fact that the way Buddhism evolved did not really offer practice for ordinary people. It's only the option that you had for really deepening your practice was to was to become a monk or a nun, which was obviously not for not for all that many people. And so Buddhism faded in India. And it's coming back now. Uh, but it's coming back now among those who are most oppressed. Uh, so we see it, it's coming back among the the Dali, the ex-untouchables, our friends who we see in Zazen uh, every morning. And also it's coming back among the Tibetans who are who face uh, exile and genocide. Uh, so it's become a refuge to people who are most oppressed. In China, it shifted again. Uh, so rather than depending upon the alms uh, that were given by lay people when monks went out uh, on their morning rounds, uh, in China, you had the development of monasteries that were self-sustaining uh, and where everyone worked and they were farming and they were independent then to some degree of the mechanisms of the state. Uh, and they also, uh, as I said, they translated Buddhism into accessible cultural forms and they also found ways to bring Buddhism in China and then in Japan, bring Buddhism into the daily life of people. So people would have altars on their, you know, at home and they would locate their uh, revered ancestors as part of this tradition. So again, 
it was it was a culture change that somehow integrated the Confucian values of of China into what then became the Dharma. And there were similar similar motions when Buddhism uh, crossed from China to Japan. Um, what's interesting that many of you don't know about uh, is in Soto Zen, I didn't discover this until I was there because they don't talk about it very much, uh, but there was a caste system in Japan. And in many ways, the Buddhist temples were functioned as kind of the institutions of civil society. It wasn't a wide bureaucracy that spread through the country. So the temples, everybody, people in villages had to register with their temple. And then they registered, they had to register their name and their background. And this was a way of uncovering the caste and uh, perhaps ethnic background of people in their, in their communities. And it was tremendous discrimination. Discrimination against a group who were known as the Barakumin. Uh, and in the late 70s, what you had was the development of uh, Barakumin Liberation Organization, sort of in keeping with kinds of movements that were happening in the West. And they launched campaigns against, you know, calling Buddhist orders to account. And Soto Zen responded. Uh, and one of their major areas since the since the 80s has been uh, what they call human rights. Uh, looking at the school's conscious and unconscious attitudes toward towards the these marginalized peoples. And I was interested while I was at Zuyoji, uh, one day all the monks disappeared. Uh, and when we asked asked about that, it seems that every day, every every year, uh, monks and monasteries have to participate in a in a uh, human rights unlearning discrimination uh, workshop. Uh, that's part of the training of a monk. That's part of the training of the monks who are going to take on the temple so that they can really root out this kind of discrimination. And uh, their uh, You know, they found that this had crept into many of the many of the publications, many of the of the regulations that they had for membership in Sotoshu, and they have structurally tried to root it out. So that's that's an inspiration to me. So we come to the United States. And Buddhism is very new on this continent. Uh, and all of our teachers predicted that and hoped 
that it would change, adapt, evolve. And that's happening. Uh, you, most of the cultures that Buddhism has been in before were essentially uh, largely homogeneous. And that is not the American experiment. Uh, we are we are a nation of that recognizes many different cultures. And we are involved in a project that includes them, even though that project is flawed, even though it has backward steps and forward steps. Uh, I feel like that's the American democratic project. And the growing pains that we may experience in our Sangha or that we're experiencing in, in Buddhism at large, uh, they're simply the growing pains of a society that is being invited to challenge itself to challenge to grow beyond uh, patriarchy, to grow beyond white supremacy. And, you know, in a way, I see that we each have to do our individual work. Um, but again, the way cultures form is by, our sh by sharing our work and by communicating. And so this is very much, I think, it, in many ways, it resembles what we see in Buddhist time, uh, this project of inclusiveness. So I think we're being invited to, for each of us to at least look at what we call our culture look at our points of resonance internally uh, and make an effort to open to aspects of life that we don't fully see or that we have some, uh, some anxiety about. But I think that this ground for change It's our practice. Our practice is about engaging with ourselves and becoming free from our habitual patterns. And the context for this is that we do this together. Uh, the people in this room, the people out there in Zoom land, uh, we've been practicing, we have this great just, it's such an amazing thing that we're doing. So many of us have been here for so many years. And so this is, each of us has our individual views, our individual concerns, but this is something that the practice is something that we share. And so we know that we sit down and we turn the light inward to study ourselves, to study our strengths and our weaknesses, our internal formations and our aspirations.
and we glimpse, and some of us know very well, that our individual self is completely entwined with our social self and society at large. Um, I've been this week, uh, Carol and Hannah and I were studying uh, a fascicle of Dogen's. We've studied twining vines. And that's, it's about how the, the Buddha meeting Buddha is twining vines. And that to me is our aspiration. So um, I know that there are, there may be questions about, you know, what I'm presenting, questions about this program and feelings. Uh, feelings are completely uh, understandable, necessary, and fair to express. Uh, we are planning, the Culture Change Committee is planning to have uh, an open community meeting on Sunday, September 11th, I believe. Uh, and that'll be an opportunity to share discussion and also to share, uh, to share, to share information and also to share discussions and share feelings. And uh, those details will go out on the website and the list. Uh, and meanwhile, if you feel called to take part in this program, that's great. Uh, and if you want to stand back and wait and see, that's also totally fine. Um, I just want to invite us all to trust everyone's good heart and everyone's bodhisattva intentions. So we have some time for questions and discussion. Sue. Thank you, Hazan. I was very impressed with the announcement that came out. I actually haven't read it through yet, but the beauty of it and the first part of the invitation was so welcoming that I'm now ready to go home and actually read it and compare it to my calendar. So, and thank you for the talk. If people are not on the listserv, how do they get that information? The website. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, let's see. I saw a hand up here. EJI uh, has his hand. Go ahead. Good to see you. Great. Thank you so much for, for your talk. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned something about, and it wasn't, I didn't get it clearly in my mind, but you articulating example of how, um, more specifically, you said everyone left the Sangha to go to a certain training at, at a certain time. And I was just trying to get my fingers around what exactly, what that was and yeah. what the yeah, if you could say something about that. Thank you very much for your talk. Yeah, thank you. Very, very well, powerful. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. Um, it was well. I was in Japan. I was in Japan doing a, a special training for Westerners, and we were at a we were in at one of the training monasteries, uh, a place called Zuyoji, and uh, what happened was that one day all the Japanese monks were gone, and they were gone for the weekend. Uh, it was gone because they were they were taking a they were expected to take an annual uh, human rights non-discrimination course that was that's uh, established by Soto Shu, the Soto headquarters. And so that's where they were, and which was news to me because we we had, you know, we don't hear anything about that in, in the West. Uh, but uh, it's they've had to root out this deeply uh, this deep discrimination that was uh, systemic uh, in uh, in Japanese Buddhism. And this is what they're doing. Uh, I don't know that it's perfect, but it's really different than what than the situation in the in the 70s. So that's what I was talking about. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Yoni. I was wondering if um, it's, you could tell us what the format of this, uh, this group is going to be like. Is it going to be a council format or are they going to be lectures? Um, maybe Mary or Karen could speak to that loudly and clearly. Sure. Maybe I'll okay. mask down. Um, the course that um, this sort of Zen Buddhist Association has created is a self-guided course that includes video reading and discussion format, which we are organizing small groups to attend, um, groups between five and 10. So the format of that would be um, hybrid and be in person and online both, if we could figure out that. And uh, watching um, videos, doing some breakout groups, doing discussion. Then that alternates. So hang on, I've got to I've got to repeat this uh, because not everyone is hearing. Um, there'll be uh, the essential format would be small groups, maybe five to ten people uh, that will meet uh, every every month. Every other month. Every other month, uh, and it will be hybrid some in person, some in Zoom, and working with the, the materials that have been presented in terms of readings and uh, videos that are part of the program that's been designed. Yes, and alternating with that, in the alternate months, we'll all meet together, but also include a hybrid option with Rhonda McGee for an experiential and I don't have the format of yeah. that, but she, in her book, talks about journaling and breakout groups and so forth. So it, it really is trying to put into practice, give us an opportunity to practice the skills that we're aiming to develop right. in real time. So on alternate months, um, the whole group will meet, 
again, online and with uh, uh, and on Zoom with Rhonda McGee to do basically experiential work, uh, journaling exercises, uh, so that they'll have so that it'll, it won't just be work in the head, it'll be work in the body. Karen, did you want anything? Okay, does that, that answer the question at the moment? What's Yoni's question? Oh, it was Yoni's question. Never mind. Okay. Did I answer your question? Thank you. Any more, any questions out there? Or in here? Yeah, Carol. I have a question of since um, <clears throat> we're going to have it on Zoom, I'm assuming people that are not part of our Sangha could come, as well as even if we had friends that we thought were interested, is that so? Or do we want to stick, stay with our... <laughs> I would like to, I, I'm not defining this, but I would prefer to stay with, with our Sangha uh, because there, there are not so many places and it's like we're experimenting with this and this is this is i see it as a sangha building uh manifestation is that the uh karen and mary who are are lining their heads okay thank you joel yeah thank you very much hosan uh it's a very wonderful and beautiful and necessary project I want, I was very grateful that in the beginning you really emphasized the seventh precept of not praising self and putting down others. Um, and um, I'd love if you could enlarge on the way you view that. Personally, I've felt often that that's a crucial precept regarding this dialogue and that probably all of us have violated that precept. I've been feeling myself that on <laughs> all these labels are terrible on the quote unquote progressive side of from progressive people I've felt a lot of praising self and putting down others, which in my experience uh, has made dialogue very difficult often. And so I'm really glad that you brought up that particular precept and as i say i think we all violate it but if you could you know sure address more about I that think, i think what you're pointing to is um and you know i've been guilty of it i've seen it uh you know in you know, going back from my entire uh history as an activist is how we can get how one can get trapped in righteousness. And I, I think that's what you're talking. And righteousness yeah. is praising yourself at the expense of others. Exactly. I think that the the this effort is an attempt to really ground us in equality and not in righteousness. And uh you know, we will do the best we can. Uh, but I trust that, you know, I, I know the people who designed this program, I know Rhonda, and I know us. And I think that, that even if I or someone else might fall into that, uh, I'm willing to acknowledge it, 
step back from it and correct my course. And I hope that that all of us could do that. Um, I see Helen's hand and that might be the last the last uh, question for the for the day. Helen. Good morning. Morning. I, I'm our internet um, cut out for a moment, so I don't know if you covered this. Did you mention uh, that there is going to be a, an info session and yes. an opportunity? Oh, okay. Yeah, I did. Thank yeah. you. It's going to be on September 11th, and oh. uh, Sunday, September 11th. So that still leaves time. If people are still kind of thinking about registering, and if there are still any places left, uh, wait, Karen's got her hand up. Yeah. The invitation includes some people to contact if you would like right. to ask questions to some of the organizers. Right. So the invitation includes uh, a couple of contact people if you want to ask questions about the program before that. But we can come together in a, a community meeting on September 11th and uh, both share questions, information, and also share feelings, concerns, uh, appreciation, any of that. So good. Thank you. Um, thank you all. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your practice and for being here. And uh, uh, enjoy the rest of the day. I'm going to go out and play some music this afternoon, which is like, I can't believe I'm doing that. So very happy about that. Thank you. Wings are I